Welcome. Uh, if you don't know me, I'm Scott. I'm one of the site pastors here at City. Uh, I pastor the St. Macro site along with my wife, Sarah, and to some extent my daughter, Evelyn, as well, who does uh, some small amount of the pastoring now. She goes around and just like prays for people and stuff. It's the most wonderful thing. Um, so greetings from St. Macro this morning. Uh, we miss you all. We love you all. We're excited to hear what's going on here. Excited to see you guys growing and thriving. It's brilliant. Um, and today we are carrying on in our series in Mark. We've been doing uh, a series in Mark for the last uh, three or four months now uh, called The King and His Cross. And basically what we're hoping to do in the book of Mark is to go through verse by verse, passage by passage, chapter by chapter, and just uh, almost uh, put Jesus' life under the microscope uh, and just explore everything about who he was, what he did, what he said, why he did it. Because we are recognizing that as followers of Jesus, if we want to learn from the best, we're learning from Jesus. If we want to learn what it looks like to live a life that follows Jesus, then we have to know the person that we're following and so we've been going through each week uh, trying to pick, pick the meat off the bones uh, of, of this uh, book. Um, and often when we, we come to reading the Bible, it's not like reading a history book. It's not like we're back in history and we're reading a book with mild interest to find out uh, what, what happened all those years ago to sort of nod and be like, hmm, I have now gleaned some knowledge on the area of Jesus Christ. If that was all we did, it would be absolutely pointless. There would be no point in doing it. What we have to do is read the Bible like an Ikea instruction manual as we look at Jesus and we build extra parts onto our lives. And sometimes we strip parts away from our lives as we learn what it looks like to follow him. So as we pick up the word this morning, don't look at it as a history book, look at it as an instruction manual uh, and be ready to follow the instructions that Jesus has for us today. So we're going to pick up in Mark chapter 9 verse 30 to 37. The context for this passage uh, is that we've just uh, come down the mountain uh, from where Jesus was transfigured. Uh, They've met uh, a boy at the bottom who was possessed uh, by an evil spirit. Uh, The disciples couldn't cast out the evil spirit. Jesus comes down and does it instantly uh, and demonstrates something in that moment. The father uh, of the boy says these words when he's asked, uh, do you believe? He says, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. And Jesus modeled in that moment what it looks like to have imperfect faith in a perfect saviour. He showed what it looked like to have a faith that can survive in Jesus, a faith that has doubts, a faith that has worries, a faith that has fears, because Jesus is perfect and makes up the difference for all of our shortcomings. And so that's where we pick up in today's passage. We're just finished that moment, and now Jesus has gone off to a quiet place to teach the disciples the next lesson he has for them. So it's Mark chapter 9, verse 30 to 37. If you need a Bible this morning, there are some Bibles at the front here. Catherine is going to be the Bible monitor. If you need a Bible uh, and you'd like to read along, you can pop your hand up. Uh, If you don't have a Bible at home, please feel free to take one away with you. We would love that to be our gift from us to you this morning. But if we see it on Gumtree next week, we will hunt you down in Liam Neeson style. We will find you. (laughs) We won't. But we will be mildly annoyed. (laughs) So Mark chapter 9, verse 30 to 37. I'm just going to pray before we read. Father God, we uh, come before you this morning recognizing that you are amazing, glorious, and wonderful. Jesus, we look to you as our example of what it is to live uh, a life to the full. Father, we desperately do not want to live outside of your grace and outside of your will. And so this morning, Lord, would you tuck us right into the heart of what it is you're doing in this city, what it is you want us to partner with you on, and how we draw closer to you and amongst it all. 
thank you, Lord, for your grace and mercy poured out afresh on us each day. Amen. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus didn't want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. How many of us uh, can empathize with the disciples on a regular basis? (laughs) Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Wow, short but sweet today. Uh, And just incredible words from Jesus today. I feel like Jesus is having a little bit of fun with the disciples in this passage. Because he he basically starts out when he gets there saying, you know, I am about to lay down my life for the world. I'm about to make the most uh, ultimate sacrifice that has ever been made in history. And then he turns to the disciples and he says what was it you guys were arguing about on the road? (laughs) And they're like, don't look. And Peter, I can imagine Peter, especially after two uh, complete failures in a row, would have had his eyes firmly fixed on his feet. And like, I'm not going to be the one to say it. One of you guys can say it. It's not me this time. They had been following Jesus and they've been arguing about which one of them is the greatest. They're arguing about which one will be the most powerful, which one will hold the most authority, which one will be looked to by the world as the greatest disciple of Jesus. And Jesus here is saying, the greatest is laying your life down for those around you. I'm about to lay my life down and my expectation is in my followers that you will do the exact same thing. What he doesn't do in this moment, interestingly, Jesus, he doesn't uh, rebuke the disciples for seeking greatness. He doesn't say it's terrible of you to have been working out who is the greatest. It's just that they've got what the idea of greatness completely wrong. They're looking to the world to look to them to work out which one of them is the best. And actually, Jesus has a whole different definition for greatness that he's going to unpack in the next few verses. And so the first thing that we're going to explore in this passage is what is greatness? What is the definition of greatness? How do we define greatness? What becomes clear really, really quickly in this passage is that uh, the world's idea of greatness is uh, all the way over here at this end of the spectrum right here. Uh, And the kingdom idea of greatness is all the way over here at this end of the spectrum right here. They are polar opposites. The world's greatness says uh, be the most rich, be the most famous, hold the most power, uh, have the most authority, uh, lord it over everyone over here. And over here, the kingdom view of greatness is give it all away, have nothing, put everyone else in front of you in the queue, make sure you're the last person served so that other people can thrive and survive their polar opposites at ends of the spectrum the disciples are squabbling about which one is the greatest which one will be seen as the greatest by the world and Jesus is saying guys you've missed the point greatness isn't about how the world sees you being great greatness is about being seen as great in the father's eyes 
Jesus says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise again. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Jesus takes this private moment with the disciples to explain to them what true greatness really is. He gathers them in a quiet corner. This isn't in front of a crowd. This is just him and the disciples. And he's saying, guys, I'm about to lay down my life for the world You don't understand that yet. You won't understand it for another five or six chapters, and even then you'll be holding it very loosely. But I'm about to do that. And the reason I'm going to do that is so that uh, mercy and grace and forgiveness can be released into the world so that each and every person in this planet can know uh, a, a closeness with the Lord that they cannot experience just now, that the Holy Spirit can be released to fill and refresh and renew each and every one of us. That is why I am doing this. But what the disciples took from that moment was, well, which one of us will be the greatest? Which one of us will be the most powerful? Which one of us will be the mightiest? True greatness is found in the serving of others, is what Jesus is saying. But the disciples have kind of got this idea that greatness is to be found in what people think of them. They've just got it completely wrong. Um, A few years ago, uh, after I graduated from university, I had the chance to visit a country in the Middle East. Um, Some of my friends had gone there to set up uh, like a mission base uh, in this country. And part of what they were doing was they were setting up a storehouse in the country. Um, Where they were based in the country, there were three refugee camps uh, in the city uh, where they were based, uh, dotted around the city. Uh, And what they wanted to do was set up a storehouse where they could fly in supplies and stuff and look after the people in the refugee camps well. So we went out for a whole summer uh, to hang out with them in this country. Um, and paint storehouses and get stuff ready for donations and build metal shelving and all that kind of stuff. So we went out to spend the summer doing that. And while they were there, something became obvious really quickly. There was a stark difference in how uh, this city uh, treated its citizens. Um, On one hand, there was three refugee camps dotted around the city, and they were basically based in... um, like old uh, sort of uh, shelled and broken uh, high-rise buildings. Uh, So there was maybe seven or eight people sleeping in a room, three or four families together huddled in corners. Um, There was all these kind of like people, there was maybe thousands of people in these high-rise buildings that were maybe designed for 250, 300 people. Um, And so they were there, they had not much food, not much water, uh, not much clothes crammed in these tiny spaces. And then when you went down the road, literally uh, round the street and uh, like up the corner, maybe a minute's drive, there was the local government uh, buildings uh, for the people who were in charge of that place. Uh, And it was like a palace uh, with massive golden domes on the roof. Uh, And everyone who came in and out uh, went in and out in Mercedes or top-of-the-line cars. They had all these cars. There was armed guards all around the building so that nobody could get in. Uh, And everyone who went in and out was dressed really smartly and really well. There was a stark difference. There was a complete disparity uh, between the wealthiest uh, and the poorest people. Uh, there was there was these people who had been put in charge, uh, who were supposed to be looking after their people, had gathered up and held all the wealth for themselves and kept it in this one little pocket of society, and everyone else was left to suffer. And I think when Jesus is describing kingdom greatness, he looks at that picture And he flips it on its head and he says, greatness is almost the exact opposite of that. 
Greatness is about choosing to use uh, whatever power and authority and resources and influence that you've been given, whether they are great or tiny, taking what you have and giving all of it to make sure that somebody else can thrive and grow and survive uh, and, and make it where they wouldn't have had a, had a chance before. It's a crazy, radical way of living that Jesus is calling the disciples to. It flies against uh, the societal norms. Don't gather for yourself. Don't build yourself up. Don't uh, do it so that you can have a better position or status or anything for your sake. If anything, you aim for power so that you can use that power and authority to lift other people from the darkness and into the light, out of tragedy and into triumph kingdom greatness is putting aside yourself so that others can thrive i think the disciples would probably have felt quite at home in our society uh, with their ideas of own personal greatness because the society we live in is uh, massively self-promoting we're told to buy more stuff we're told to buy bigger cars bigger houses, fancier clothes, flashier watches, new mobile phones. We're told to upgrade everything, spend more money. We're told to aim at success for yourself. There's so much of that chattering. It's like, you wear this for you because you deserve it. Get this dress for you because you've earned it. Do this for yourself because you have made it. The promotion of selfishness is insane. We have our kids growing up watching uh, famous YouTubers who are 17 years old driving around in Lamborghinis and living in mansions and being told, this is what you have to aim at, guys. Become rich, become famous, become uh, Lamborghini-driving teenage millionaires. Do you know what? At the same time as that, though, the government recently published statistics that show that 4.1 million children in the UK are living in relative poverty. That's over 30% of children in the UK. One in three children live in poverty. And yet the consistent message that has been spoken over and over again is get rich, get more, buy more, spend more, do more, make it happen. The contrast is alarming, the unobtainable dream, eh, as opposed to the actual reality. And so how do we apply the lens of truth from the Bible on our society? What do we learn from Jesus that makes a difference in this society? Well, it's these words right here. Jesus called the twelve and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Jesus puts a stop to the ambition of selfish superiority as the definition for greatness and tells his disciples to put themselves last so that others can thrive. Bear in mind that these are the 12 guys that he is completely reliant upon spreading the good news around the world after he has died and gone. This is a quiet moment. He's gathered them because this is crucial information. This idea that we serve and we love as our main port of call for loving this world is like a foundation point for the gospel. True greatness is defined by giving, generosity, sacrifice and love, not riches, status and material wealth. And so um, 
maybe a good question for us as I was thinking about this. What, what is a good question for us to be asking ourselves in the light of these words by Jesus to put ourselves last and others first? Maybe a great question that we can ask ourselves regularly is, who is benefiting from my decisions that I'm making? Is it me or is it someone else? Who benefits from the money that I spend? Is it me or is it someone else? Who benefits from the things that I'm purchasing? Is it me or is it someone else? And if the answer to those questions is consistently me, 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 then it's time for us to shift gear and head in the opposite direction instead of being in the camp over here that we start driving over to kingdom greatness where we give and we love and we serve so that people can meet uh, our saviour Jesus. And so how can we be great then? So if Jesus doesn't uh, say that greatness is a bad thing to pursue, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't rebuke the disciples for wanting to be great, but he says that they're going about it in the wrong way. What does it look like for us to be great in the eyes of the Lord? How can we ensure that the greatness we're pursuing is Jesus' greatness and not the greatness that the world has to offer? And I think the first thing is this, uh, that we have to recognize the source of our greatness, that we recognize that greatness comes from the Lord and the Lord alone, that we get our approval from our Heavenly Father. See, Jesus isn't just a great rabbi. He isn't even just a great leader. He's the Son of God. And so when he speaks to the disciples, he's speaking as the Son of God. Jesus brought them into that private place because he wants them to understand who it is he's following. He explains to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. In that moment, he is explaining the law and the prophecies of the Old Testament are going to be fulfilled in him. He is the Messiah they've been waiting for. I am the son of God. In this little moment with the 12, he's explaining it to them again. And Jesus would have been aware of the disciples' uh, inherent need for power and greatness. He experienced uh, the same temptation himself uh, when he headed off into the desert and the devil laid out the whole of the earth before him and said, you know, this could be your kingdom, your domain. You can have anything. You can rule over this whole place. Jesus knew what it was to be tempted by power and to be tempted by greatness that wasn't kingdom greatness. He would have been 100% aware of the shortcomings in the disciples' humanity. Their need to be recognized and adored. We even saw that in last week's passage when they tried to heal the boy uh, who has an evil spirit within him and Jesus comes back and afterwards they're like totally grumbling about it and they're like, why couldn't we heal him? Like, they're totally, obviously like their, their identity's been a bit bashed by the fact that they publicly couldn't heal someone. Instead of looking for the approval of the world, they needed to be plugging directly into the Father and aiming at his approval and his alone. Um, I don't know if you've ever tried to upgrade your phone, uh, whether that's something that you do regularly or not. For me, that's a fun challenge. I used to work in sales, so I absolutely love it when phone contract upgrade renewal time comes around. It's like I set aside some time in my day. I'm, like, I'm going to give two hours to this, and I'm going to get the best deal that I possibly can. Um, but I didn't always know uh, how that game worked. I've, I've had phones from when I was like 16, and every year when it came to renewal time, I'd phone them up, and they'd be like, here's the phone that you can have. And I would just accept that. I was like, okay, that's the phone I can have. That's cool. And then that's the price I can have it for, and this is the things I can have. And then I worked 
worked for a telecoms company, and I'm going to let you in on, an, on a trade secret here. This can't leave this room, but every telecoms company has a department called the retentions department, okay? And they are like the magical key to all the deals of your dreams that you've been waiting for. So the retentions department are basically the last line of defense between you uh, leaving a phone operator and going to another provider. And so when I started working in telecoms, the first time I was due a phone renewal after that, I phoned them up and I said, I actually work for a telecoms provider. Can you just put me straight through to your retentions department, please? And the guy was like, uh, yep, okay, cool, put me through. Uh, and I came away that year uh, with not only a cheaper phone contract, but a better phone, a reduced broadband price, and four times my data allowance that I had before. You see, you need to know the right person <laughs> And that's what Jesus is saying here. True greatness comes because you need to know the right person. Your greatness can only come from the Father. Anything outside of that greatness is false greatness. You know, the greatness that the world has to offer us is uh, to be the richest, to be the fastest, to be the strongest, to be the most talented, to be the most skillful, to be the best at whatever we do. Do you know what the problem with that is, though? Only one person can be the greatest person in the world. Okay, everyone else is not the greatest. There's one guy who's the most talented or girl who's the most talented, uh, smart, strong, intelligent, funny, uh, brave person in the whole world. And then all the rest of us are not the greatest. Okay, I'm willing to concede it's not me. I mean, one of you in the room might be that person, but for the rest of us, it's not. And so when we're striving for greatness, we will never be satisfied by the greatness the world has to offer because we'll always look ahead and there will always be somebody who has bigger stuff than us, fancier uh, cars than us, better clothes than us, more riches than us, who are better at football than us, who can sew better than us. There's always going to be a greater person. There is no satisfaction in the pursuit of personal superiority. There is absolute satisfaction and greatness in the eyes of the Lord. Because when we're great in the eyes of the Lord, we are given, we find joy, we find, uh, we find the Lord in those moments. Only God can bestow greatness on us. Not riches or status or affirmation, but a, an affirmation of a life lived in pursuit of him. That is kingdom greatness. A life lived sacrificially so that God can be glorified in every moment that we find ourselves in, in every conversation that we have, in every uh, a second of every day that Jesus gets the chance to shine. That is greatness. So a good question for us to be asking ourselves uh, when we do stuff is, who am I trying to please here? When I uh, upgrade my phone, who am I trying to please with my new phone? When I uh, buy a new telly, who am I trying to pre please with this telly? When I go on a holiday, is this a restful holiday for me? Or is it so other people can see on my Facebook pin where I've been on holiday and be a wee bit jealous of me? It's a good question to ask. Who are we trying to please? So that's the first way we become great is knowing the giver of greatness. It's about getting our affirmation from the Lord alone. The second way is that we love the last, the least, and the lost. Jesus makes it really clear in this passage what kingdom greatness looks like. The disciples have just been arguing about who's the greatest, and then Jesus slips immediately into an actual practical definition of what greatness looks like in the kingdom of God. 
And notice how they sit down to discuss this moment. This isn't designed to be a passing comment from Jesus that uh, goes in uh, one ear of the disciples and straight out the other. He sits them down, he looks them in the eye, and he says, guys, this is what true greatness looks like. Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and a servant of all. And then he highlights that point by taking a little child and he, and he says to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. Those who want to be a top dog here on earth for the sake of themselves, their own status, their own need to be better than others, their own riches, security will be seen as last in the kingdom of God. And those who place aside that so that others can thrive and benefit and grow will be seen as first. It's a kingdom flip. It turns everything upside down. It would have come as a bit of a smack in the face to the disciples who'd just been arguing about which one of them was the best. But isn't it remarkable what Jesus is saying here? Put others first. He even goes on to add the detail of bringing a little child into the mix. Now, the context of that would have been that children uh, in the Greco-Roman world uh, that that Jesus was preaching into in this moment would have been seen uh, as one of the lowest uh, one of the lowest stakeholders in society. They would have been held uh, just above uh, servants and slaves in the family regard. Even within an own family, uh, they would have seen them as really low. They wouldn't have had um, any power, any influence, uh, any wealth, anything to offer. They basically would have had nothing to offer back. And that's why Jesus is saying, the way you treat these people who have nothing to give you, that defines true greatness. Whoever loves the least gets down in the pit beside them in order to give them a hand, getting out of the mire. It is as if you are lifting Jesus himself out of the pit as you do that. I love the story of a pastor in Tennessee in America called Willie Lyle. Um, He was appointed as the pastor of Sango United Methodist Church, uh, and he decided to conduct a little experiment. I feel like he's a bold man to have done this, but for the first week, he moved to the town, so nobody knew him. He'd just been appointed as pastor. Nobody knew who he was. Uh, He basically lived on the streets of his town for a week before he took charge of his church. So he went out, made himself intentionally homeless for a week, slept on the streets, just to see how his town in general treated the the least and the lowest Uh, and so he did that for a week and his final day it culminated on his Sunday morning he went and sat uh, under a tree in the grounds of his own church that he was about to take part in it's a church of 200 people uh, and 20 people stopped for him in the morning to ask how he was doing so 20 out of 200 people came over and had a conversation with him and said how are you doing and as they introduced him he walked in uh, still homeless and he gave his first uh, sermon uh, with a bowl of shaving cream and some water in front of him and as he was preaching he was shaving off the beard and then he put a tie on and then he like combed his hair and he was like guys I've been outside this church this morning and only 20 of you stopped and spoke to me and then he read this passage that we've been reading today whoever wants to be uh, first will be last and how you treat uh, the very lowest in society will define uh, your greatness in the eyes of the Lord and he just encouraged them in that moment he was like guys we want to see this city changed We need to love the least, the lowest, the the most broken individuals. That's the call from Jesus. Do you know what the amazing thing about it is, though? I only uh, have really, I think, truly grasped this in the last couple of weeks as I've been preparing this talk. Uh, For me, I thought that um, 
meeting with Jesus, mostly in my head, was like the time where I go away and I read my Bible and I worship and I lock myself away in a wee room and that's how I meet with Jesus. And then once I've met with Jesus, I head out and I do some stuff for Jesus and then I head back and I meet with Jesus again. And actually, the reality that Jesus lays out here is that as we love people excellently, we meet with the Lord in those moments as we welcome uh, people who are struggling and broken and hurting and lost into our lives. It's like we're welcoming Jesus in himself. We meet the Lord in those moments, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Greatness comes not from what we have or what we own or who we're in charge of, But instead, the greatness that we get to experience is that we meet the King of Kings every time we stretch out a hand uh, to lift someone. I love that Jesus uses the example of the little child coming to him because he alludes to the fact that we should expect nothing material in return for the, the help that we give to the world, for the times where we serve. There should be no expectation of reward. And that, again, flies completely in the face of our society. You know, if you're the great CEO of a bank, you should expect a massive bonus at the end of the year. If you're a top-class footballer, you should expect uh, a, a massive contract and sponsorship deals. If you're a great politician, the expectation is that you'll be rewarded by being ferried around in fancy cars and being given a big allowance for a big house. Again, Jesus flips all this on its head and explains that kingdom greatness brings with it the eternal reward of knowing our heavenly Father intimately. And as we stretch out a hand to meet people who are struggling, it's like we're stretching out a hand to Jesus himself. And as we draw them close to us, we draw Jesus close to us. We don't just meet with Jesus reading our Bibles and worshiping. We meet Jesus in the very act of serving and loving the world that he's desperate to meet. We don't serve either to see who notices that we're a great person or a brilliant person. We serve to bring joy to the heart of the Father. And, and as we bring joy to the heart of the Father, uh, we see his children restored, healed, released, loved, honored, and protected by our outstretched hand and the Father working through us. Uh, Shane Claiborne, who's one of my... Uh, ultimate heroes in life. If you don't know who he is, please go away and buy his book, uh, Irresistible Revolution. It totally changed my life. Uh, he's, um, in his book, he says this, only Jesus would be crazy enough to suggest that if you want to become the greatest, you should become the last. Only Jesus would declare God's blessing on the poor rather than on the rich and would insist that it's not enough just to love your friends. I just began to wonder if anybody still believed Jesus meant those things that he said. The great thing about these words from Jesus is um, it doesn't take a five-year implementation plan to get into action here. Uh, We can literally walk out of church today. uh, We can find someone who's struggling. We can invite them into our lives to have a meal with us. And we can say, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus. And I believe that Jesus has told me to help this world in any way that I can. So I'm just wondering, is there something I can do to help you today? It's literally that simple for our hurting neighbors, for our uh, struggling work colleagues, for our friends, for the people that we meet on the street, for the people uh, who God draws us to. It's an invitation into relationship and a hand that is outstretched and willing to help and serve. The big question is then, what are we waiting for? 
if we know that the, the, the city of Aberdeen can be revived and refreshed and brought into relationship with Jesus by the way that we stretch out our hands and help and love and sacrificially give our time and our effort and our energy and our money, what are we waiting for? <laughs> it's like um, having the knowledge of CPR is a great thing, right? But if somebody collapses with a heart attack in front of you in the street and you do nothing about it, no life will be saved from the knowledge that you know CPR. We have uh, the defibrillator for this city and that we can bring grace and love uh, and help and support and kindness uh, and joy into every situation that we go into. This city is desperately in need of a heart revival and we are the ones to bring it. Knowing what Jesus said is not enough. Uh, knowing what Jesus said and not doing when, anything with it is not an option Jesus gives us as his followers. He tells us to go and live the words that he's spoken out. We place ourselves last so that others can go first. Uh, we sacrifice so that others can thrive. Uh, we downgrade so that others can upgrade. That's the kingdom view of greatness. That is the life that we're being called to as people who've signed on the dotted line for Jesus. Why don't we stand and we'll pray together.